Welcome to the See You at the Conservative podcast. Today we're talking about working with learning. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in Kilmarnockshire, and I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Oh, welcome, guys! Hi, welcome to episode three. Yeah, it is episode three, and you may welcome to episode three. You may have noticed it's not about metals conservation. I guess it's going to be. Uh, oops, these things happen. Yeah, life happens. Life happens. It will still happen. Yeah, please hold. <laughs> you know, just later in the season. Don't worry. But instead, we have another exciting topic, as you may have noticed, because at this point you have clicked on this, so you, you'll know that we're talking about learning. <laughs> anyway, to explore this topic, we've got a special guest host with us, and uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, hello, I'm Claire. I work at Imperial War Museums in the public engagement and learning team. I'm based in London, but I'm originally from the Northwest, and I'm based across all the sites of IWM. So that includes IWM North in Manchester, and then we've got Duxford in Cambridgeshire, we've got HMS Belfast on the Thames, we've got the Churchill War Rooms, and then we've got IWM London as well. So there's five five branches of our wonderful IWM tree that I work at. <laughs> wow. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is lovely. Regular listeners of the podcast will know that we're doing a working with series within our seasons because we know that we work so much with the conservation work so much with other departments in museums and we can all, you know, give each other so many wonderful, you know, additional things in our work. So we've worked, we've done working with curators, working with front of house and working with techs. Have we done anything else? No, those the ones that we've done. We do have more in the works. In the planning. So stay tuned. But uh, today, today it's learning. Learning. Hi. <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah, I'm really excited. So this is, we normally start with a definition. Yes. Do you have a definition, Jenny? Or shall we vague one around? <laughs> Love it. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say was that Initially, I was like, why do we not call it education? But I suppose that gets a little bit confusing because we have actually done quite a lot on like conservation education yeah, in yeah. the past. So I think just to just to like make it distinct, we went with the word learning. But actually, these sorts of things are called a lot in the museum world mm-hmm. and heritage world. So learning, education, it spans into outreach. Mm-hmm. This is actually a crazy big sector mm-hmm. in, in the museum world. And that also makes it a little bit difficult to mm-hmm. define. Because <laughs> like, I think the sort of classic thing is like oh it's when school kids come into the museum and like i was gonna say someone deals with them <laughs> <laughs> the museum teacher is rolled out but that's that's sort of not how it is anymore right it's now a dis- often a distinct department yeah yeah often mm. yes and i would say that most places would have someone with within mm-hmm. this role although it will be called different things in different places so you know it can be learning officer mm. or you know mm. the education officer it can be uh, the, all sorts of things really and it, it sort of depends on the mission of the museum as well like how you how, what you call it what sort of remit it has as well mm. yeah i don't know that i have a good definition as such uh, does anyone else want to have a go at defining it yeah i was gonna say what does claire feel that the definition is it does really depend on where you are and how that particular organization define it and I think you can tell a lot about a museum and how it goes about its uh, education learning public engagement whatever whatever you want to call it particularly at IWM well officially we call it public engagement and learning Mm -hmm. but for me personally 
it's about investment investment in your future audiences because if you have a positive experience when you're a young child at a museum it's very likely I would hope that you would then return to that museum Mm -hmm. when you're an adult and you would have you know a family of your own or you'll be visiting with friends and it's a very long-term form of investment Mm -hmm. in my mind because no matter you know who I meet and I say where I work they say oh yeah I went there you know when I was you know in year five or whatever and I still remember it so it has a real a real lasting impact on on people's memories and their fondness of it, which is always lovely, but also it, it has a real tangible impact on their actions later on in life, mm-hmm. you know. So it's a, it's a slow burn of a return of investment in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's playing the long game, it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's why I think it's so important that, you know, engaging with young people and children, you know, obviously it can be led by the learning team, but it should be something that everyone considers, you know, important for the future of your organisation that you work in. And I guess it's also about just putting the audiences at the heart of what you do. And it's listening to them and co-curating programmes with them. But it's equally that finding that balance of what the audience wants. And sometimes they'll tell you, I want like, you know, all this and that. And it's like, we don't have the budget for that. (laughs) But we can... (laughs) Oh boy. Oh boy. (laughs) I want dinosaurs. And lazy. Yeah, yeah, I want a massive spaceship, you know, whatever. So it's listening to them and taking on that information, but then aligning it with, you know, your core values and, and what it is, your aims and objectives and what it is you want to get out of that program for that audience. So it's finding that balance of if it's right for the organization and if it's right for the audience as well. And hopefully that creates a really positive experience for anyone that engages with us. Brilliant. Chloe, do you have, like, what, what comes to mind when you think of, like, learning? I think a lot about the conversations we've had about diversity and conservation in museums. Okay. Mm. School groups coming in is a sort of broad brush of, every, you're in a school, you're in this class, you're going to the museum. And that's not dependent on, you know, it's dependent on the curriculum. It's not dependent on whether mm. that's what you tend to do or whether that's what you fancy doing or anything. You've got to do it. I think that's what you're saying, Claire, about people remember, oh, I went there in year five and I really enjoyed it. And so they went back or they might, you know, go home and say, I'd like to go here again. Or they'll, you know, see <laughs> conservators on doing some, you know, in uh, from a conservation point of view, they might mm. look into a conservation window, for example, and say, oh, wow, a conservation is a thing. I'd like to do that. So that's not even considering what they might learn at the museum, but just mm. visiting the museum, learning that museums are fun, learning that heritage mm. and history is fun getting that break from the school and the classroom, I think is it sort of, we're diversifying the audiences essentially because yeah, you're forcing yeah. kids to come along, you know? <laughs> I mean, has anyone not found it fun to just be outside of the classroom for a day? Like as a kid, there was basically Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it is a super good point. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's their first visit to a yeah. museum. Mm. Like often it is, mm. you know, like mm. opening that door is super helpful to make it less scary. Yeah, definitely. That's really, really interesting what you're saying there, Chloe. It reminds me of, well, two things really. The first is that in the new Holocaust galleries at IWM London, one of the archivists from Treblinka camp said to the the gallery team that uh, they actually took part in a Holocaust learning session when they were in secondary school at IWM London however many years ago. And now she's an archivist 
directly working on the new galleries that to me was just yeah how amazing is that so there's that element of it that visibility you know seeing that there's a big wide world out there and there's lots of different things that you can do career-wise but also I worked with a couple of schools in the development of the new Holocaust learning program and that was the first time for some of those schools that they had even some of those pupils had even been to London for example so it was a really really big deal for them and in particular there was one special educational needs group and I spoke with the teacher before they came and she specifically requested could her students practice going in the lift clicking correct button Mm -hmm. for the correct floor because that is a really essential life skill mm-hmm. that these students just don't get the opportunity to do of all the time. And it hadn't even, that hadn't even crossed my mind that, yeah, these are quite, can be quite overwhelming. Yeah. If it's like you say, Jenny, the first time they've been in a museum. So that's why I mean when I say, you know, everyone should be, you know, invested in, in these right from the moment they, they get on site. It doesn't just sit with learning. It's, it's everyone's responsibility to make schools and all visitors feel welcome. Oh, can I throw in a a fun fact because it made me think of something? And it is that my first time buying something with my own pocket money was at a museum shop. And I remember that. And notably, I actually found the thing that I bought literally yesterday. Uh, Oddly fortuitous. Yeah, it was like a little, (laughs) it was like a little, um, uh, female creation of like a, a pair of stone age adorable vaguely prehistoric children like little it was just like a pin that you could wear uh, i don't think i ever put it on anything because it was too precious about it but it's what i spent my pocket money on at my first sort of solo museum visit with school i would have been very young at the time <laughs> but it was a big deal to choose something for myself and go to the till with the scary woman put it in a paper bag like how clear yeah. is that memory that is insane yeah. Yeah. But but yeah, it it is museums can be a place of firsts for many people. So that's you know, something worth bearing in mind. That's wonderful. I hadn't thought about the difference just the difference of being in a different building and, and having that mm. sort of well, yeah. large scale, you know, how often as kids do we have chances to go to a big building that isn't school or in unlucky cases mm. hospital notably also not with your family yeah. which can mean different social mm-hmm. rules potentially more freedom but also it's it's different because you're there with peers and maybe friends if you're lucky mm-hmm. it's a very different atmosphere to if you were going with say a, maybe a stern grandparent <laughs> or uh, <laughs> you know yeah it's a different universe as well mm-hmm. which is it's a pocket dimension which is beautiful yeah and you're most likely to be in your uniform yeah really identifiable so it can feel really odd it's a it's an odd experience but hopefully a positive one yeah my favorite thing to do so i mentioned conservate window into conservation because that's what i have um and one of my favorite things to do is whenever you get the sort of naughty kids banging on the window like like you're a fish (laughs) tap the snake tap the snake is it gonna is it asleep sort of thing and just waving at them and smiling and they're like oh oh god oh she can see us oh and they go all embarrassed and then like start laughing ah. and stuff and then they run off to do something i have else. totally done that in yeah. similar situations <laughs> where i've just been like hello and they've been like oh you're like a living object exactly yeah yeah <laughs> here's the conservator in a natural habitat yeah. <laughs> at least they're not bang the glass <laughs> 
we have a similar approach with our learning spaces at IWM London, which were redeveloped as part of the new Second World War and Holocaust galleries. And we have got some prime real estate in the building. Yes. Like they are some lovely rooms. And I should say, um, they were generously funded by Claw and Taub Philanthropies. But what's brilliant about them is that they have windows out onto the galleries. Mm -hmm. So if you're a student in those learning spaces, you can see that you are so clearly not in a classroom Mm -hmm. environment. You are in a museum. But equally, it's making learning really visible and at Mm -hmm. the heart of what the museum does. And so there's that aspect of it. And there's also the aspect that the windows out onto the outside park around the museum is out onto a dog park. And that's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's just for me. (laughs) That is good though. Extra well-being points. I see nothing wrong with this. (laughs) But it's also the idea of place and the idea of you've left your normal routine and this is your, this is your fun day out. Yeah. And I often find with the learning spaces because they are, they are like no shade to where I studied and stuff, but they are far nicer than any. Nice. university building I have ever studied in and it, it's like if you give students the respect you know mm-hmm. that they rightly deserve they they will come up and meet you with that with their behavior mm-hmm. whereas if you treat them like naughty school kids yeah they act like naughty school kids yeah so mm-hmm. um I, I'm just thrilled with the new new spaces can we talk about the new galleries and stuff mm. then? so I remember when I went to the um when I went to IWM with mum, mum's not a huge fan of war. <laughs> and so we would go to the art galleries, which is, you know, mm. another way of mm. looking at the uh, going to museums with schools. That If your parents are super into museums, they might not be into, for example, the football museum or something like mm. that. And mum was just like, I'm mm. really sorry. I don't want to go into this gallery because I find it really upsetting or I find it really, I've been in before and I find it really, and we were like, okay, sure, absolutely. So I suppose what I'd like to know, first, I'd like to know how you approach the learning environment when you're dealing with such serious topics. Yes, I would start off by saying, like, we're not, you know, a pro-war museum. We have war in the name, obviously, but um, it's, it's funny when you say where you work, you either get you know one reaction which is oh you're pro war and I'm like no 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 we're not we're not we're absolutely not that um we tell the stories Mm -hmm. of of individuals um affected by war and conflict from the first world war to the present day or the other reaction you get is oh do you have this mk1 billion second tank (laughs) and I'm just like oh do we I don't know (laughs) super specific yeah yeah yeah, super specific like plain questions I'm like I don't know um (laughs) So, yeah, I guess I kind of, um, how we approach something like Holocaust education within the museum is that we really kind of align it to our core brand values, which are, um, to be courageous, you know, not be, mm-hmm. to not be afraid of, of asking difficult questions about a difficult and challenging subject matter, uh, to be authentic. So make sure it's rooted in our collections, mm-hmm. um, to be, uh, empathetic. That's really, really important in what we do and also to be relevant. Mm-hmm. How is this relevant to, to people today? So it's re- it really helps that we've got that kind of groundwork mm. done in terms of what we do strategy wise. And then how we approach the learning environment is that um, we worked really closely with a variety of schools in developing the new 
Holocaust Learning Programme as part of the new Holocaust Galleries at IWM London because like, a bit like what I was saying before, like everything we do is tailored for a specific audience. And in mm-hmm. this case, it was school. So we actually went out. I did um, several focus groups with teachers and was able to actually go into schools last summer, which was incredible given everything that's um, gone on. That was amazing to just get out into schools and, and, and speak to students about what they would expect from a learning experience. And then something that I'm just so, so thrilled that we were able to do is that we were able to then invite those same schools who I had gone and met when they were like in year nine Mm. to, um, that was like in the summer towards the end of term, we were able to invite them back to IWM London to visit the new Holocaust galleries before they had opened to the public. Oh, Oh. very nice. It, It was a really surreal moment to see these students that I had met you know end of year nine they got end of term vibes mm. to year 10 like I've started my GCSEs now like oh this is a big deal mm-hmm. and it was just really bizarre to see them in the spaces for them not to existed have existed before and then to actually see humans in there and also for going back to that visibility thing they were seeing you know all sorts of professional people in there you know from the curatorial team to the conservators to you know builders and contractors changing light bulbs things like that and it felt like a really exclusive like behind the scenes look at museum practice and I was so thrilled that we were able to offer that to those students so we we kind of started there we started with the audience and I should say that public engagement and learning put together um, a strategy as how as to how we would approach this program and it like you said it comes from the curriculum the holocaust is the only compulsory subject on the national history curriculum in England. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. so by year nine, every secondary school student in England should have learnt about the Holocaust. So whether they go on to do history Mm. at GCSE doesn't matter. So it's a really kind of core part of what what we offer at the museum and that's why it was decided that we would have a learning programme ready for when the galleries were ready. Mm -hmm. In an ideal world we would have let the galleries open first and then do a learning programme but it was decided that no this is this is a really integral part of what we do so it provided many many opportunities and challenges and then to add on top of that you know working from home and the space is not existing and seeing like graphic designs of the galleries and then fast forward two years and they actually exist so like what I saw on my tiny laptop screen at home is what's in front of me now <laughs> and it's been an incredible incredible thing to work on and I'm just so thrilled that we were able to collaborate so closely with with our audience for it and teachers and students. Oh that sounds amazing. Do you find people getting upset during the learning sessions and how do you deal with that? That's a really yeah that's a really, really interesting question because obviously it is a hugely challenging mm. and complex subject matter. And something that I always say to students before they go into the galleries is that I just really try and encourage them to self-censor. If there's anything they don't want to look at, they don't have to look mm. at it. But obviously graphic content is on display. So it's really just hopefully giving encouraging them that they have the authority and autonomy over their own experience and Mm. they they don't have to look at anything they don't want to look at and more often than not I don't get students that are upset I'll get them just a bit stunned Mm -hmm. and a bit stupefied and they don't have the words to explain how they feel and it's I always say to them you know 
it takes a couple of days for things to sink in for me and that might be the case for you so I try and encourage them you know if they've still got questions and they're still not sure about anything to ask their teacher Mm. when they're back in school and so I would say yeah you almost get no reaction Mm -hmm. and that in itself is a reaction Mm -hmm. and and I try not to we really try hard you know not to be prescriptive in how we want people to react to these galleries because it's subjective how how do you know some things I'll see and I'll have seen it a million times Mm -hmm. and then I'll see it on a particular day you know and it will really hit me sometimes I, I won't react at all and both of those both of those circumstances are okay mm. when dealing with this challenging subject matter. Yeah. We recommend that, you know, children under 14 don't go into the galleries mm. and we only offer our learning session for school groups in years nine and above because mm-hmm. that is what is aligned to the curriculum. So mm. that's, that's yeah. the stance we've taken with that. So to lighten the mood a little, <laughs> I'd really like to talk about the process of developing those galleries on the ground with, for example, conservation. Something that I worked particularly on with conservators at the museum was 3D scanning <gasps> some objects. Cool. It was it was really, really interesting. So the learning programme, we wanted it to feel, you know, innovative and new technologies and things like that. And we just thought, how can we do that? And actually let the objects speak for themselves. But obviously the objects are on display in a very carefully, you know, curated and conserved way in the galleries. So how can we just make that a little bit more tactile mm-hmm. for students? And and we decided to 3D scan. We worked with a brilliant creative digital agency called Friday Sunday Studio. We were all able to go to Duxford, which is where our the majority of our collection is conserved. And the team from Friday Sunday brought along a 3D scanner and we were able to scan a variety of, of objects that I had seen before on display, I had seen on collections online, but again, it was that moment of seeing it there, mm. seeing it there in, in front of you. I remember it was something, uh, it was a fork that a child had brought with them um, when they came to Britain on the kinder transport. And like, we see and use forks all the time, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was, it was incredible to see it there. Wow. And then. So we 3D scanned and we worked really closely with the conservation team and they were incredibly, incredibly supportive and collaborative in what, what we were doing. And equally, it was really important for us given the subject matter that we were sensitive to this material. Mm. So we, had we met several times before we got to the actual 3D scanning day of what is appropriate to 3D scan, what isn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, on practical terms, is it too big to scan? We were going to scan um, a trunk that a family, the Vol family had packed for their children who came to Britain on the kinder transport. Turns out it's really hard to 3D scan a massive trunk because <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen a 3D scanner, it looks a little bit like a travel iron. <laughs> <laughs> it would have taken them several days, I think, uh, to scan that item. Um, but so there was that element of it. But then equally, we were scanning things like um, uh, Hanukkah, which is used during the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. Mm. And so there were religious items that we were scanning and we consulted with a rabbi on, on how appropriate that would be and, and got his blessing, which was wonderful. And we, we consulted with him throughout that mm-hmm. process. We consulted with him, you know, with our object selection for scanning and he, we got him to sign off and approve the, the final scans itself. Mm-hmm. You know, is this a, is this a, an appropriate, you know, reflection of what, what the object is? So there's that element to it. So with the 3D scan, that will come up on learning devices for students when they're around the galleries and that is a really good example of how 
teams can collaborate to make a brilliant learning moment mm-hmm. for students because we've got the 3D scans are working with the conservation team on that but students can tap on certain areas of the object and that will reveal um, information on that object oh, that brilliant. isn't on display yeah. it's not on display anywhere in the gallery so we work closely with the curator team to get that extra information and uh, what came up a lot from students was you know how do you how do you get this material how do you get it mm. who who donated it like how does it even come to be here so we're able to give them you know behind the scenes look at you know how museums acquire objects and in some cases you know they're bought at auction which feels mm-hmm. you know you would expect everything to be you know lovingly donated and that is often the case but sometimes yeah often not the case too yeah, yeah. not the case yeah, yeah exactly and, and getting students to think about about that process of collecting and from getting it into your collection to then it being on display. Mm -hmm. So that is a wonderful example of how curatorial public engagement and conservation can work together to create this hopefully, you know, lasting, memorable moment for these students. And then I guess another element of how conservation worked with the galleries was that there is a typewriter on display in the section of the galleries under annihilation and it's kind of the first object that you see when you get into that new new part of the galleries and that typewriter um, came from uh, Lieutenant General Arthur Sayers Inquart so he was a Reich commissioner um, in the Netherlands and he used that typewriter to type up um, orders relating to the Nazi occupation oh, wow. of the Netherlands yeah it, you know as well as anti-Jewish decrees and things like that and he was he participated in the deportation of around uh, 107,000 Jews from the Netherlands from 1942 to 1944. So that typewriter is on display. And how the the team worked with the conservators with that was that they were actually able to take an imprint of the font from that typewriter that is then used in the gallery design. So whenever perpetrators are mentioned, it is in the font from that typewriter. That's Um, cool. Yeah, so when I perpetrators, yeah, yeah, so that it doesn't mention that anywhere, but it's a really, you know, insightful kind of moment about how these things don't just come to be. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. thought that goes into them. And equally with that typewriter, there is um, sounds in the galleries as you go around. And in the annihilation room, there is a train carriage on display that was used to deport um, Belgian Jews to, to camps. And the sound in that space it sounds like a train on a track mm-hmm. and it steadily steadily grows and builds till it sounds almost like a train and um, screeching to a halt mm-hmm. and actually it's not it's not a train the conservation team actually um typed on the typewriter recorded that sound so that's the train what you think of the train mm-hmm. tracks and then they recorded the sound of them moving the barrel oh, of yeah. the typewriter and that's the screeching and the reason for that is that it wanted to, the team wanted to suggest that kind of element of, of the deportations, but it all kind of came back to the bureaucracy mm. of it and the fact that it started with a man typing, mm. a typewriter typing these orders down. Yeah. And, and, and it built and it built and it built and to eventually, you know, these trains actually being on the tracks. So that is a really, really, I just think that's a, a fascinating insight into how, conservation can contribute to the overall vision and feel of the galleries themselves 
I got goosebumps when you were describing that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well done, yeah. IWM conservation team. <laughs> Shout out. It's like a multi-layered Easter egg. Oh, I love, I love the idea of Easter eggs. I think they're brilliant. Yeah. Content Easter eggs, just so any, if anyone's confused. We don't oh, mean yeah, yeah. actual <laughs> Easter eggs that like, we are recording this on just before Good Friday, but it, it like audio and mini, uh, media Easter eggs, uh, rather than chocolate. <laughs> Chocolate yeah. wrapped in foil. <laughs> Though those are good too, <laughs> but not in museums. I find food in museums fascinating because food it is. is never meant to be preserved. It's meant to be eaten. <laughs> <laughs> and we have food in the collection at IWM. We have um, a hundred year old, well, over a hundred year old trench biscuit because oh, wow. the oh, yeah. butter content was so low, it was basically cardboard. Mm. And then soldiers would turn, we've got one that's a photo frame, so a soldier turned it into a photo frame for their family. We've got one where they would write, you know, um, messages on them. It's it's so fascinating. And and equally from the Second World War, we have things in our handling collection, for example, of powdered eggs in the tin um, that was shipped over from um, the USA during rationing. And if you shake it, you can still feel the eggs it's it's so funny it's so bizarre yeah you should listen to our food episode <laughs> oh there is in fact a food episode so go and listen to that <laughs> i see we we mentioned learning spaces and i thought that was really interesting and i just wanted to like quickly talk a little bit about like maybe maybe what learning spaces look like in different Ooh, in different places because yeah. yours sound super cool they by are, the way and uh, I, w- I was trying to think of places that I think of as learning spaces. Swanky places <laughs> often have like purpose-built learning studios yes. yeah, yeah. Mm. and stuff like that. That might in fact be almost freestanding or like in a really different part of the mm. building. And I always felt like that's a little bit divorced from the actual museum. Mm. Like yeah. it's like better keep the noisy kids away from the nice stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's slightly how I feel about it. I mean, it's good to have an event space. Don't get me wrong. Uh, for many reasons, including pests and having food and all that sort of thing, oh, right? Yeah. And having somewhere for school kids to maybe eat a packed lunch and stuff like that. They, they are useful spaces. Do not get me wrong. But also, I do feel like you're sort of missing out if you're just putting people in a, in essentially another classroom in yeah. another box. Yeah. As opposed to being in a gallery. Of course, there are mixed things with maybe having the galleries themselves as learning spaces in that it might be off putting for other visitors if they sort of feel like they can't enjoy the gallery space at the same time. Mm. If it's not advertised beforehand. I mean, I've certainly turned up to museums and gone, I'm going to the specific thing. Oh, great. It's closed all day for learning. Great. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm only God. here this one day. And that's super sad. Uh, I've definitely been that annoyed person for sure. So it can cause conflict, certainly. Mm. Um, but also, I really do like the notion of being in the actual place with the, with the mm. things, right? Like that's, mm. That is a valuable experience that mm. I think is really nice but I, I get that there's a bit of conflict there um, and also from like a conservation point of view of like are the kids going to eat their packed lunch mm. in the gallery is there extra cleaning afterwards <laughs> usually no <laughs> um, yeah, are people going to handle food right next to some paintings that are unglazed you know like that, that sort of thing like, so from a risk so from a risk point of view then maybe there is a heightened risk but on the other hand it is people in the space enjoying it which is exactly what it's for right that is the purpose, is it not? To be in there enjoying and, you know, enjoying the space, right? So. Yeah. I absolutely think they can coexist. We're all, mm-hmm. we're all yeah. visitors at the end of the day, guys. You know, whether you've <laughs> yeah. got a school uniform on or not, I think you just, the, the teams that engage with those 
visitors just have to work really hard to find that balance of of there being an, an imbalance of mm. you know like you say yeah. if it's closing a gallery like that's that's such a shame you know I actually think some of the it's really nice to see young people engage and be in a learning session yeah, I, think that. So, yeah. I think that visibility is important and that's something we do with the learning program in the holocaust galleries is that and teachers were quite apprehensive about this we actually ask students you know quite open-ended questions and we get them to have a debate on gallery for example in the section where it's called seeking sanctuary and it's all about people that came to britain uh, through various means but stories like the kinder transport for example there is a display belonging to the Dermot family and it's many many documents relating to this one family's attempt to leave Austria but this is before the second world war has broken out and we literally give students the definition of what is a refugee mm. what is an immigrant and we get them to debate on gallery do they think the Dermans are immigrants or refugees at this point and that really came across from the testing huh. that we did last year with schools because they would just say well why didn't they just leave why didn't they just leave and it's like well you're asking that question with the benefit of hindsight yeah. you, you know what's going to happen they they didn't know and and it, and just think about the magnitude of making a decision like that leaving your home to go to a country you may never have even been to before and that ties in nicely to the kind of empathy side of what, mm -hmm. what we were aiming to do is to get them to really think critically about the incredibly difficult decisions that individuals had to make at this point in history and, and through those debates I am continuously blown away by how mature and profound students' responses are to that and how they're able to kind of draw about the poignant relevancy of having a debate mm -hmm. like that with this subject matter to today's world. So and, and I really hope that any visitors that see students having those discussions and debates on gallery, you know, would, would only encourage them to continue to do that. Keep asking questions about this, this history, because if we, if we stop asking questions about it, we'll, we'll never, you know, understand it in, in a different way. And that was something that we really had to get teachers on side with that we, there are no yes or no questions to this mm, history. Yeah. Everything is open-ended, you know, and that's the point of history at the end of the day. It's okay for your opinions and ideas to change mm -hmm. based on the new information that you gain. And I, I hope visitors will, will see that if they see any students engaging um, with the learning program in the Holocaust galleries and having those debates. Brilliant. Aww. So our, uh, I'm a huge fan of our learning spaces as well. I wanted to talk about them because they're, they're sort yeah, of... Yeah, what are yours like? They're the sort of thing that you described, Claire, of being quite... Well, I suppose I'd say every space in my museum, everywhere can be a learning space. Um, but there are areas that are particularly set up for it. So we've got a learning room, which is used for learning for kids groups, adults groups you know, craft days, all sorts of things. We've got picnic tables for kids to eat lunch in the sort of downstairs foyer area. It's away from collections for the most part, and it is cleaned more regularly. <laughs> so and it's next to the bins, the food waste particular, yeah, surrounded by pest traps. Um, <laughs> I'm imagining that in a really literal sense now. <laughs> 
<laughs> just on one giant yeah, sticky exactly. pad. <laughs> yeah. But in the in gallery one, we've got something that I've never seen, I never saw before I came to this museum, which is uh, it's called the Mini Theatre, and it's in the centre of the centre of the gallery, and there's a huge circular curtain with theatre lights that that they're drawn back against the side of the gallery when they're not in use and when they are in use for um i think they're called living history events they close the curtains and do the lighting so that it's theater lighting and the kids sit in there or the the, the group sits in there and they have the the sort of the actors go in and do the living history event do the acting do that sequence but it's just a big essentially empty section of the gallery that when we change over our banners and roll out large basically large flat textiles we clear all the stuff out of it and use that for the banner hang so it's actually integral to what we do um, as well because we need that space to to be able to do our work in the gallery every every year like a multi-purpose pop-up theater yeah and it's it's sort of it's a fixed place it can be used for all sorts of different events i find it really clever because then it, it also sort of cordons off and barriers off you can still see into it if you wanted to watch but it means that visitors can experience the the galleries interesting as they are you know you wouldn't have anywhere for your toddlers to run around but other than that you can still experience the galleries in the same way and the sort of in terms of like overstimulation for visitors with different neurodiversities they, that's not so much of a thing because you can hear it but it's not yeah. you know all empowering we've also had in the downstairs foyer area for short periods of time for lux levels <laughs> um oh god i can't remember what they're called i can't remember what we called it basically put an object on display so people could draw it doodle den doodle den that was it oh <laughs> doodle den <laughs> it was really I love nice. it. so that was another thing that conservation we were we were able to do and you know i bet you had more adults doing that oh we had loads everybody was <laughs> doing it yeah it was great this is it. it was yeah. really good so we had yeah learning would say we'd like it on this theme does anything spring to mind and we'd say well this but it can only be on display for a week or that but that's amazing that's a brilliant example of how everyone benefits when museums don't work in a siloed way yeah. we're all yeah. there we're all here for the same reason same purpose and i know we've all got different budgets and aims Ooh, and objectives oh. and like <laughs> but mm. you know we are essentially all here, here for the same reason exactly. and that is a lovely a lovely example of cross collaboration between departments that taps into something that is an interesting point to make about the challenges of spaces mm. because more often than not, museums are in historical buildings that yeah. were not built for purpose or, you know, and I, I think that's a lovely example of how a space can be multifunctional and beneficial mm -hmm. for, for many, many different visitors and their reasons and needs. Yeah, space in museum is, is a really big issue. I think that I, I definitely didn't consider before I started. I think we uh, we do sort of love cramming a lot of things into galleries, <laughs> <do>. which is <laughs> as many plinths to navigate around as possible. And in some ways, it's nice because we're just trying to make the most out of the space that we mm -hmm. have, and we're trying to like really maximize the amount of stuff that we can show people and share with people whilst they're there. But sometimes it's just like I just wish there was an empty space in the middle of the room, which is sometimes somewhere to escape to, yeah. or sometimes it's somewhere to put a table because you you need to have one whilst you're doing something, or it's somewhere to have a group of people and stand and, and, and talk to them. Mm. Gallery layout can be challenging. <laughs> I was reading something the other day on gallery and I was like, Where's, where is it? 
I'm going to read this label. Where is it? And then I realised it was up above me. <laughs> so oh. That is my top tip is to always look up in a museum because you never know a clever person is filled a space. <laughs> it really can't be something. I was going to throw in an additional uh, type of learning space, specifically because sometimes gallery spaces aren't particularly suitable to uh, maybe being the learning space. And that's outdoors. Um, that's a really fun throwback to somewhere I used to work. It, it, it was in a park and so the the outside was used quite quite liberally as a learning space. It was somewhere where particularly sort of straying into the reenactment where Roman soldiers would march school children around Perfect. or where or where uh, they would uh, learn how to set a campfire for a Stone Age session or... I would love to see the risk assessment for that. <laughs> they're obviously very, very supervised. Yes, although, yes. <laughs> although there there was a hilarious time when um, the uh, learning officer was leaving and as a parting gift, they wanted to take us, the staff members who'd always seen all the school kids have fun with us, take us outside and uh, do the same session. So just like have a go at making a little campfire in the, in the oh designated area, which was a great idea until the park wardens were a little bit upset by a group of adults going to start oh a fire uh, and came over and we were like, we do this with children like every week. Why are you here now? <laughs> don't trust you <laughs> but yeah outdoors can also be a uh, a lovely alternative if you have an outdoors that is mm. but yeah can be an option can be an option i was gonna ask chloe have you been involved in like um have you been part of learning sessions anything like that i have it's one of my favorite things to do yeah we've done this a number of times but the the one that worked really well was we had a um, it was for an outside contract we had a banner in for conservation and the local community and the kids were very closely involved in the sort of process of fundraising for the conservation and so they they saw the banner every day in the church and then they were involved in the you know talking about we want to get it you know conserved and there were loads of sort of learning groups in the school about you know sharing photos of it in the conservation studio and this is what it's doing and they drew pictures of it and things like that and then the community worked with us to organize an event in the conservation in the museum with the other banners hanging um so they can see the similarities and stuff but in the conservation studio specifically thankfully we've got acres of space so we had i can't remember how many kids we had so they came in saw the their banner on the conservation tables in the process of working we showed them what we were doing told them about how many hours it was taking this is the conservation material you know this is what crepeline feels like have a you know pass it round. this is how we get the right color Aww. and then we did loads of like my colleague made some really amazing flash card like photo uh, picture cards sorry to describe the agents of deterioration and um like why we don't touch metals for example and you know i had a sheet of of black glass or something and you know if you see you can see a fingerprint if you press it how do you one of the funniest things i remember is how do you talk about custodial neglect to (laughs) seven-year-olds well you say you know Oh, that's what happens when you put something under your bed and you leave it there for a few months and then you take it out and it's all dusty and, and you know, it's mm. it's not very nice anymore. And we had micro- microscopes and magnifying glasses and handling things for them to look at and like, you know, have a go at cleaning this, uh, you know, uh, handling objects. So we've got, it was just really good. And it was a couple of years ago now, but I'm we really, every time 
you know, we do like a heritage open days or something, we bring out an element of what we explored with, with that group. And it always goes down so well. Yeah, it was really, really good. Dennis did adorable. What's great about that is that they can then apply that in terms of lifelong learning because they will, we all have objects of, you know, that we care about and are sentimental to us in our homes. And so they can apply what they've learned with you mm. at the museum to their everyday lives yeah. and how they look after their own objects. Yeah. And I think that that's a lovely lifelong learning moment for them. Yeah, it was really nice. And it's amazing when I see what they are interested in. I'm always like, oh, that's not what I thought you'd be interested in. But that's brilliant. The smallness of the tools and the mic, you know, the microscope was interesting, obviously, but it was the magnifying glasses that they could run around and look at their hands and, you know, <laughs> it's just really interesting yes you can look at really small and you can look at really big and you can make something stop moving you can make it cleaner this is the dust that comes off it how gross you know precisely those interactions though that i think are so great when teams other than learning yeah. engage with children because kids are hilarious they crack me yeah. up they're so <laughs> funny and they'll, they'll <laughs> think of things that you would have never yeah, thought yeah, of absolutely you know never underestimate a child's capacity to wonder they are continuously surprising and hilarious and insightful all at the same time whilst running around you know, <laughs> with a magnifying glass i think one of my most favorite call outs from where i was asked to come to a gallery where a group of school children were having a were having a session um and the learning officer went went and fetched me and sort of went so we have some very specific questions could you just can i borrow you and they had so many questions about taxidermy which is adorable so i'm not a taxidermist at all but i do work on a lot of natural history so i do know a bit about how mm. they're made and i did know a quite a bit about the specific specimens on display in terms of like some of them had funny stories for example like oh someone's cat once brought this in and then they then gave it to the taxidermist so we actually know whose cat that the cat is named in the record oh, wow <laughs> do, do your cats ever do that and then there were loads of nods oh. <laughs> so it's just like that whole thing with the cats though it's bringing it that historic matter to some relevancy mm. within their own lives you know yeah. and helping them connect to the past through that way yeah that was probably the first time when i felt like i was sort of properly not integrated with but like it was less siloed mm. and the less siloed working environment because previous places i'd worked were quite siloed so even though we'd done like outreach events uh, or like open days uh, aimed at kids then we did them sort of on our own and not in collaboration with learning which is a bit of a shame this place I worked at, it, it was really nice being involved. Like uh, we actually developed uh, school sessions around museum work and what what's the types of jobs that are in museums, for example. So we were sort of representing the different roles in museums and sort of telling them about, well, these are the sorts of jobs that exist in museums because for a distressingly long time, I didn't even know that. I mean, I probably made it into my late teens before I knew that there were more than two types of jobs in a museum. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's, you know, not great. Definitely made a specific little session about uh, conservation skills. So things like putting a putting a broken pot together um, or uh, dusting something. We, we had uh, a little uh, museum vac set up so that people could try just uh, dusting stuff off one of my stuffed toys, which we dusted Perfect. in. But I want to say potato starch because we thought that was least likely to cause allergens according to the oh. risk assessment so that they could sort of have a go at, because it's very visual, right? It starts out white and then it's no longer white when <laughs> yeah. you're done. Like it's very clear when you have a result. 
unlike in conservation where something's just slightly less brown. <laughs> Love it. Um, that was a really, really fun thing to do and to sort of couch the stuff that we do in, in terms understandable to a mm. seven-year-old is it was a great exercise to have with the learning officer as well. It was really nice. And we made a whole school session about fakes in the museum because we had a lot of fake Egyptian things, for example. Oh. So we made a whole school session about Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, how to spot a fake and how you might discover that something is fake and yeah, just just showing them things that were real versus fake and that sort of thing and uh, and, and making it all nice and fun. And then yeah, so it's sort of like a detective saga, but the conservator is the detective. I'm so on board with that. There is definitely stuff that you can do, uh, depending on what you've got in the collection. You know, like, just have these silly conversations over a cup of tea, and you might actually find that there's something in there that they, that can be tied into the cur- curriculum and might be something that nobody else is offering. You know, it, it might actually be a selling point for the museum if you develop something that's, like, just unusual and fun. So, yeah, it's definitely worth a go. It's really fun as well. <laughs> Also, it's just more excuses to have tea and biscuits with uh, some of your favourite colleagues and just... Uh... Those are how some of the best decisions yeah. and conversations come about is at the boiling the kettle. <laughs> and hopefully we'll have more of those now that things are settling down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, hi, um, I'm Jessica England. I'm currently the communications manager at GEM, which stands for the Group for Education and Museums. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really nice of you to do that. Thank you for having us on the show. So what is GEM and what do you guys do? So GEM is a charity, but also a membership organisation. And we support everyone who delivers learning in museums, heritage sites and other cultural organisations. So that covers a really broad range. Um, but museums and heritage are really where we concentrate. And we provide training, networking opportunities, mentoring, publications, resources and more. And that supports museum educators at all stages of their career. And we uh, really are, our vision is to create inspiring experiences that are relevant for everyone which promote equality, transform and enrich lives. That's a great mission. Something we sort of, not struggled with, that's perhaps the wrong word, but we were trying to find, like, sort of think of a definition of, like, what learning sort of means. And uh, we sort of had some ideas, but I was curious to sort of what you would take on. What, what what does that mean in, like, a heritage context? I mean, it's a tough one. It's really tough. I think learning in a museum and heritage context is pretty broad. And it covers all sorts of activities. So it can be self-directed exploration or it can be, you know, really closely facilitated sessions looking at something specific in a collection. Ultimately, we would say at GEM that learning is for all age groups at all stages of learning. And it also needs to be inclusive of people from different contexts, different backgrounds, different abilities. Um, I think traditionally, when people think of learning, they think of school visits yeah. and <laughs> classrooms. But, we, you know, we would say it goes far beyond that formal education, actually, um, to help everyone engage with a particular topic or item or just the, you know, the history of a site itself. So who can join your organisation? Where can people find out a bit more? So anyone can join our organisation. Really, we promote ourselves to anyone who's interested in learning. So that can be people in, in traditional learning roles, but that can also include anyone else who works in a museum or heritage site. Um, crucially, we have um, different types of membership, one of which is institutional membership and hundreds of organisations around the UK, you know, heritage organisations and museums 
RGM members and that membership applies to everyone who works for that organization. So your learning team might be the only people who currently engage with us, but actually conservators are also very welcome to use our services, you know, take our discounts and training. So you should definitely have a word with your learning team, first of all, or maybe someone in HR and find out if your organization is a GEM member, because if they are, you already have access to everything we do. Amazing. Great shout out. And if you don't, that's fine. Um, lots of the stuff that we do, we put out for free for everyone. So we have lots of free resources. We do regular case studies, publications, and all of that is on our website. So you can visit gem.org.uk to find out more. And you can also find out how to get in touch with us there. Send us an email and we'll send you some more information about how you can really benefit from getting involved with us um, and maybe you know, how we can help you to learn more about learning in your organisation. As usual, we will put all the links in the show notes so you can check that out. Conservators, definitely go and have a look at this. Thanks so much, Jessica. Today I'm reviewing the conservation of medieval polychrome wood sculpture, History, Theory, Practice, by Michelle Marincola and Lucretia Carger. This is a Getty Conservation Institute publication from 2020. Medieval polychrome wood sculptures are actually a bit of a first love for me, as it's the first type of object I got to try my hands on as a trainee back in 2006. They're extraordinary pieces of art and devotion, and I hope I get to work on more of them in the future. Anyway, it felt oddly appropriate to be reviewing this book over the Easter weekend, as the majority of works from this era are religious in nature, as you might imagine, which the book readily recognises, and in fact flags up as a possible threat to their future care and appreciation but I'm getting ahead of myself here. This aims to plug a gap in the market. It's a book aimed at conservators first and foremost, and other interested parties second. But it will definitely appeal to anyone who appreciates this kind of artwork or devotional item. Curators, collectors, historians, parishioners, etc. They also spend some time explaining that resources are often scattered and are rarely available in English, so I can only imagine the enormous amount of work it took to research and compile such a tremendous book. This is no recipe book, so you won't find any convenient treatment recommendations in here. Treatments are discussed, in fact at length, but always with the caveat that one solution does not fit all cases. If anything, this is a cautious book. It doesn't shy away from mentioning the tools we might use as conservators or the options we might consider, but it always urges us to pause and think before we act. Okay, let's talk about content and structure. Part one of the book has three chapters, one on wood, one on polychromy, that's hard to say fast, and one on deterioration and change. These are both thorough and thought-provoking. If you already know about the nature of wood, you'll feel like this is a useful refresher course, and if you're not a paintings conservator, like me, you'll still be able to enjoy the chapter on painted surfaces. What I'm trying to say is they pitched this right. Nothing is over-explained, but there's also no assumption of masses or prior knowledge. Often I pick up a book like this and I expect to feel intimidated, or like I only have a right to read it if I'm a painting specialist, which I'm not. But that's not how I felt about this book at all, and the world is better for such books. Part 2 is the more practical half of the book, well, more than half actually, and has chapters on deciding on treatments, preventive conservation, consolidation, adhesion, cleaning and loss compensation. The chapter on designing a course of action is an ode to the conservator and the condition report. It also highlights the role of ethics and thinking about different values in our work. What stuck with me is the call for mistakes. It's so important that we're brave enough to talk about what hasn't worked. 
We can't really make any progress if we don't share our failures. I love the historical knowledge that backs up these chapters. There's an acknowledgement of old practices and how these items were cared for by the congregations, some amazing glimpses into how consolidation of paint layers was approached in the past, as well as some truly poignant points about what happens to these things in times of unrest. They were talking about iconoclasm in the distant past, but with the world's brink of war around us, it's hard not to see the parallels. It's only a few weeks ago we saw photos of polychrome wooden sculptures being carried to shelters in Ukraine. At the back of this book, you'll find a series of helpful case studies. And can I just say that I love that they're at the back for easy reference. Thank you so much, guys. As well as an examination checklist, that's the kind of cheat sheet every conservator needs in their life. I mean, honestly, I wish we had this sort of book for everything. Great job, guys. This publication is a love letter to wood as a material, to the function and full life of these sculptures, and to the idea of letting go of our preconceptions. I especially enjoy the call to let go of ideas around original. Instead, we must recognise how complex these items are, and appreciate all of them, sometimes overpainting and all, although always in conversation with the stakeholders, of course. The danger of irrelevancy is ever-present, and the book asks us, well, I suppose the authors do, to shout about these collections more, to use them, to cherish them, and to talk about them, so they're not just seen as relics of a time when people used to go to church. The pictures in this book elevates it to near coffee table levels of beauty. I know we're not necessarily all about that in conservation, but the striking full-page images are an absolute treat, and there is nothing wrong with a beautiful textbook. Heck, we could all learn from that. And if you're a lover of monotone graphs, there are a few of those too, so don't worry. A treat from my point of view were the paint layer drawings found in all documentation. Colourful sketches don't get nearly enough space in our publications. This book has 278 pages in beautiful colour, and you can pick yours up from the Getty Online Shop for 70 US dollars, or from UK booksellers from around 50 pounds. This is one of my favourite review books in a while, so I heartily recommend that you take a look if you can. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the C word and you've been listening to Claire Lawler, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about, well, it might be metals conservation. We'll see how it goes. Okay. And, uh, in the meantime, you can check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robinson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. <laughs>